Well, uh, begin reading at verse 4. Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Amen. We've been using uh, these verses as a springboard into the theme of revival and reformation. I gave us four points uh, this morning uh, that the Lord would um, bring about a reformation in our own church, and one by way of revival, uh, two, the importance of rejoicing in the Lord's work, and three, we looked at reforming and rebuilding. I want to talk further about uh, that first one, uh, that work of God to revive his people. Now, the psalmist here, again, in verse 4, is asking God for what? Restoration. Why? What has happened to the people of God? Well, the people of God have gone into captivity. This is a psalm, if you see, it says a psalm of the sons of Korah. So that tells you it's a little bit of a latter psalm as opposed to the, in the days of David. And we know that the people of God were unfaithful. We've been studying that in the book of Kings, and we know that um, they will be led first into the Assyrian captivity in the ten northern tribes, and then in the Babylonian captivity. The first one happens in 722, and the second one in 586 B.C. Both of those are B.C. So the, the psalmist here is praying for revival, um, and the psalm recalls the history of God's forgiveness and restoration. And he's asking that God would do it again. Notice he says in verse 6, Will you not yourself revive us again? So there were obviously, the Spirit is here telling us that there were former times when God did revive his people. And the psalmist is simply asking God to do what he's done before. Now, I think you can see the applications for that for us, right? We have heard with our ears, Psalm 44, we have heard with our ears what you have done in our father's days. We have heard in our ears, haven't we, what God has done in the days of Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and Beza and Knox. And later on, what God has done in the days of Edwards and Wesley and Whitfield. We are here tonight in a half-empty church asking God to do a work again in our own day, that the Lord would send his spirit and revive us again. Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? It is a prayer for revival. It's a prayer for restoration. Now, if one looks closely at the history of revivals in the church, one will note many things, but one will note a common thread in a lot of them is that they were associated with prayer. I don't know if you've ever skimmed through books of the Bible, but if you skim even quickly through the book of Acts, I think your eye would fall upon two things 
that you see. One is the word, how many times the word prayer shows up in almost every chapter. Number two, how the Holy Spirit's name is mentioned in almost every chapter. As you start going through, particularly in the first half, in the first two-thirds of the book of Acts. Prayer, almost every chapter, prayer is mentioned. Luke mentions prayer again and again and again and again and again and again. And then the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is mentioned again and again and again and again and again. Now, why does Luke do this under the inspiration of the Spirit? Well, I think Luke is showing us that in the first of these awakenings, since the time of Christ's ascension, that God used the prayers of God's people to send the Spirit. But it's not just in the New Testament. We see in the Old Testament the association between prayer and revival. For example, we see in the time of Elijah, which brought about a brief respite. It was brief, I'll acknowledge, but still a respite in the days of a wicked king and queen through the ministry of Elijah. And what is it that the New Testament focuses on? Is it the, is it the fire, boys and girls, that the New Testament focuses on in the ministry of Elijah? No. Is it the killing of the 400 prophets of Baal that the New Testament? No. What does the New Testament focus on? Focus on the prayers of Elijah. What does James tell you? He says that Elijah was a man just like you. And yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and God brought a judgment. Now, why, why that prayer? Well, it's because what was Elijah praying? He was going back to Deuteronomy 28, where God said, if, if my people are disobedient, then I will make as the sky as bronze and the earth as iron. And he, that's a poetic way of saying he would withhold the rain. And Elijah prays, and God begins to withhold the rain. And that, of course, leads to the climactic moment where there is this confrontation between the true and alone prophet of Elijah and that of all these prophets of Baal, and you know the story. God brought a, a, a reformation in that day. But it began, how? Three and a half years earlier, didn't it? Three and a half years earlier. Now, that ought to tell us something, too. Okay, if it takes Elijah, you know, several years before the Reformation comes. Um, we should be patient, too, in persevering in prayer. We see in Hezekiah, Hezekiah destroyed the idols of his father, King Ahaz. We're actually going to see that here in a week or two. In the temple, and he consecrated the temple, how? With two weeks' worth of prayer. Two weeks of prayer and worship meetings. Once the temple had been cleansed, he dedicated the temple, he renewed the people of God through prolonged worship services. Now I know that in our circles we often criticize churches that have quote-unquote revival meetings because we know that man cannot put revival on a calendar. But in fairness, I think we ought to at least um, acknowledge that God sometimes will leave a blessing behind when churches gather together for prolonged seasons of giving themselves to the word and prayer. Um, yes, we cannot dictate when the wind will blow. Uh, Jesus said the wind will blow where it will and when it will, but nevertheless, we can seek the Lord for those blessings of the Spirit. 
What do we find in Acts chapter 2? Prior to Pentecost, which was promised by Jesus upon his ascension, we find that the church are gathered together, gathered, to, gathered together for the purpose of prayer. They're praying together in the upper room. And it's, in, it's actually in a prayer meeting that the Spirit is given. And then once the Spirit is given, then they go to preaching. Now, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say this, boys and girls, but church history, which is uninspired, that follows the church history of your New Testament, apparently uh, James, the apostle, was known for the nickname Camel Knees. Did you know that? Camel Knees. Why would they call him Camel Knees? Well, it's because his knees looked like a camel. He was on the ground so much praying that his knees uh, were calloused from all the time he spent in prayer. The reformers used to have a slogan. They said, from our closet to the church, from our knees to the pulpit, from our closet to the church, from our knees to the pulpit. And here again, what are they saying? They're connecting prayer and the public gathering of God's people, prayer and preaching, prayer at home in our closet, and the blessing of God in the church. Queen Mary said that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than all the armies of Europe. John Knox was a bold man, and he often got that boldness, I think, in secret. He got it in prayer. Knox was said to have had a garden that he would go into and he would pray. One night he was praying with friends, and Knox spoke somewhat mysteriously and said that deliverance had come. This was during the time of uh, the reign of Bloody Mary, but um, he couldn't, he, we, we are told that he could not tell what had happened, but he felt as though something had taken place and that God had heard their prayers for the church. And then it was soon after that they received news that Bloody Mary was dead. Knox prayed that famous prayer that all of you probably have heard, but it's always worth repeating. Oh Lord, give me Scotland or I die. Give me Scotland or I die. I don't know. Do I have the boldness and the faith to pray, Lord, give me the United States or I die? Or give me LaGrange or I die? Or give me Troop County or I die? I don't know. But Knox had that kind of faith. He had that kind of zeal. And he prayed it, we are told, even three times in a row. Luther, of course, was known as a man of God for prayer. He would pray with humble boldness and even lay down promises that he found in Scripture. And, of course, Luther, <laughs> being Luther, he always, he's always the quotable, isn't he? He said, now, Lord, there it is in thy word, meaning he found a promise in the scriptures. He says, now, Lord, there it is in thy word. If thou dost not keep it, I will never believe in you again. Luther, uh, many of you know the story. Luther heard that Melanchthon was dying. His, Melanchthon was Luther's closest friend and colleague during the Reformation in Germany. And Melanchthon was very ill, and so Melanchthon uh, was visited by Luther. Melanchthon, feeling ill, didn't really want to see Luther and asked that Luther would let him just depart in peace, meaning that he, Luther would leave and let Melanchthon die. 
But Luther said no, he was still needed. Melanchthon was still needed. And so in that very room, Luther threw himself on his knees and he prayed for an hour for Melanchthon. And then after prayer, Luther ordered that some soup be given. Melanchthon refused the soup and Luther said, Philip, take this soup or I'm going to excommunicate you. <laughs> and by God's grace, Melanchthon recovered. Luther later told Katie, his own wife, that God gave Melanchthon back to me in direct answer to prayer. We know of John Knox, but lesser known is his son-in-law, John Welsh. Any of you heard of John Welsh? He married one of Knox's daughters. John Welsh kept a uh, he was a minister as well. He kept a plaid blanket at the end of his bed. And whenever he got up in the middle of the night, he'd take the blanket and he would wrap himself in that blanket. Sometimes he would go to the church, which was just outside, and would take the blanket with him. And he would wrestle in prayer in the night. Richard Baxter, many of you have profited from the writings of Richard Baxter, it was said of Richard Baxter that his study walls were stained with his praying breath. Whitfield uh, is quoted as having said in prayer, O oh Lord, give me souls or take my own soul. O oh Lord, give me souls or take my own soul. And of course, we know about Jonathan Edwards and the famous uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What is less known is that there was a group in Enfield, Connecticut. That sermon was not preached in Northampton uh, originally. That, it that, that was a sermon that he brought to Enfield, Connecticut. So Edwards was on the road traveling. And, uh, but uh, uh, that sermon was greatly used of God and was a part of the Great Awakening, and it's still oftentimes taught um, even in English literature classes uh, today. But what's less well-known is that the, there were some Christians in Enfield who had been alarmed at the lack of revival. They were hearing in other parts of New England that revivals were taking place, but their town seemed to be untouched. Nothing was happening. Nobody was getting converted. Nobody was being quickened by the Spirit of God. And so they gave themselves to prayer. And the night prior to that famous sermon being preached, um, some of them got together and uh, spent the night in prayer. And you know the rest of the story, as they say. Many of you may know of the 19th century revival that took place in New York City. Yes, New York City, of all places, in 1858, saw a work of God. It's recorded in a book written by Samuel Prime, P-R-I-M-E, Prime says this, his book is entitled The Power of Prayer, and uh, no one less than Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, urged the public republication of this book uh, just before Lloyd-Jones died. He, one of the last things Lloyd-Jones said was republish Samuel Prime's book. Anyway, in the book, it speaks of a man named Jeremiah Calvin Lamphere. Jeremiah Calvin Lamphere of New York. He... Um, was part of the North Dutch Church in 1857, and he was ordained as a missionary in the community. Um, he had been a businessman in the city uh, prior, and he started a noonday prayer meeting 
uh, for men who were working in New York City so that they could, you know, on their lunch break, come over once a week to give themselves to prayer. Um, it is said that um, Lamphere was alone for the first 30 minutes of the meeting, that he, the first meeting that he ever had. He was sitting by himself praying in an empty room. Finally, someone else came. And then uh, the, another, there were uh, six later. The next week, there were 20 people, and it grew from there. And it was used by God, and it spread to uh, various churches in the city uh, from there. Now, um, the psalmist says this, Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice? He says, Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. He's pleading with the Lord to do this work. But you'll notice also that he's also waiting on the Lord. He's waiting on the Lord. He's not being impatient here. He's, he says in verse 8, I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. So Jesus told us that when we pray, we must watch and pray. You know, what does that mean to watch and pray? Well, it means that as we pray, I think we're supposed to look with faith. That is, we're not supposed to pray and just forget. We're supposed to watch for the blessings of God. We are supposed to watch for God's providence to unfold. We're to watch for answers to prayer. In fact, if we pray and don't look for answers, we have to ask ourselves how much did we really want the answers? Now, in Habakkuk's book, Habakkuk lamented to the Lord about the spiritual state and condition of the people in his day, just as the psalmist is here. And Habakkuk said this in the second chapter, verse 1. He said, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. And he said, I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Now, let me say a couple things here. First of all, Habakkuk was a, a prophet of the Lord and did receive direct divine revelation. We are not supposed to receive direct divine revelation. Um, but principally, though, I think there is something here to the fact that Habakkuk prayed and then was expecting an answer. And I think that is what I'm trying to get at, is we should pray and expect an answer from the Lord. Now, God gave Habakkuk an answer, but it was one that Habakkuk didn't expect, and that has to be kept in mind as well. Because remember what it was Habakkuk's complaint and prayer. Lord, our people are wicked, and they're doing bad things. And God says, yeah, I agree, and I'm going to bring the Babylonians. And Habakkuk's like, whoa, wait. <laughs> Lord, that's not what I meant. <laughs> and uh, the Babylonians, they're even worse than Israel. Why would you, you know, use the Babylonians against us? So you have to be understanding that, that the Lord may not answer us always the way we expect. But here, principally, we see the principle of praying and waiting. Praying and waiting. Now, I don't want you to interpret waiting, though, as inactivity. Sometimes I've heard Christians say, well, you know, we're, we're not going to, be you know busy about trying to build Christian institutions until revival comes, um, 
And I don't think the Lord is saying, don't do anything until the Spirit of the Lord moves. I think we're supposed to be busy building the wall like um, Nehemiah we saw this morning and praying and hoping that in the midst of that, God will bless. Now, James Montgomery Boyce, the late pastor of Ted Presbyterian Church, said this, quote, It is never foolish to wait upon God, for God is not slow to answer. Our problem is that we are impatient and do not wait for him at all. Now, the psalmist tells us in this psalm that salvation is near to those who fear him. If we will draw near to God, the New Testament says, he will draw near to us. We have this promise from James. And so we should be drawing near to God in prayer and with the expectation that as we do so, God is going to draw near to the church. I want to talk a little bit about here the, the blessings that come with the, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you know Oliver Cromwell. Any of you seen the movie? I highly recommend you watch it if you've never seen Cromwell, the movie with got Alec Guinness in it before he became famous as uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi and as uh, King Charles the Stuart uh, monarch. But anyway, um, Oliver Cromwell, the real person, uh, met with the second parliament of the protectorate on their opening day of their new session, and he said this to the parliament. Now imagine the Speaker of the House or the President in his State of the Union address said something like this. But anyway, Cromwell said, Yesterday I did read a psalm which truly may not become both me to tell you of and you to observe. It is the 85th psalm. That is the psalms before us tonight. He said, This psalm is very instructive and significant, and though I do but touch a little upon it, I desire your perusal and pleasure. And uh, James Montgomery Boyce, commenting on this, said that Cromwell expounded on these verses as an expression of his own vision and hope that by their faithfulness to God, the, that righteousness might reign in England and that a better, finer, happier, and more harmonious age might come, quote, unquote. Now, ultimately, these words that Cromwell spoke will be consummated in the state of Christ's return in the new heavens and the new earth. We must always remember that it is Jesus Christ that we ultimately look to in his kingdom in its consummated state. But until that time, I think it is wise that we pray for the Lord to revive us and to revive his church and bring us closer to that day. When is Christ going to come? Well, we don't know. Jesus told us that it's known only to the Father, that even the Son in his humanity is hidden from him. But we do know that he's going to bring in a great multitude prior to his coming. And so we ought to pray for the reviving of the church. It may be very well that the coming of Christ is hastened because of the reviving of the church, that as more and more are brought in globally around the world, millions of people, we pray billions of people, that, that the kingdom of Christ uh, and the second advent are all the more close uh, to being realized here. Now we also do need to say this. Now one other thing I want you to see here is that 
as the people of God are praying for revival, they're not doing so from a position of superiority. If you look here at the psalm, it says here that they are in great need. It says, O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury, and you turned away from your burning anger. You've done this before, Lord. Now restore us, in verse 4. It's a petition. Lord, we are in a bad place again. We are poor, and we are needy. And we ought to remember that we are much more poor than we often realize. The problem with Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, was that they viewed themselves as rich. Jesus said, because I say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Wouldn't that be something if Jesus said similar words to the American church today, that those who are really blessed are those in other countries who have far less materially, but yet in Christ have far more than we do, more and greater experiences of Christ than we have and that we know. By contrast, you could look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, where Smyrna was poor and needy, and they knew it, and Christ knew it and offered them comfort. Psalm 51, David recognized his bad condition, and he recognized in saying that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's all David realized he had to offer for what he had done to Bathsheba's husband and with Bathsheba. We see that Jesus helped people who saw their poverty and cried out to him. The Syrophoenician woman, she owned the title of a dog when Jesus said it wasn't good to give the children's blessings to the dogs. And she said, I'll take that title. And she said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from their master's table. The Roman centurion, despite his position, despite the superiority of the Roman Empire politically, he said he wasn't worthy to have Jesus come into his own house. He recognized his poverty before Christ. We see the poor and blind beggars on the side of the street crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. We see the man at the pool of Bethsaida who couldn't get into the water. We see the, that Jesus said it's the sick who need a doctor. You see, if we're full of ourselves, then Christ is of no value to us. The Pharisees thought themselves rich in their own righteousness. And yet, they were the ones who were blind. They thought they could see. It's the people who are blind and know they're blind by nature. They are the ones who truly do see. It's those who think they see. They are the ones who truly are blind. The praying church is, a re is, is regular in prayer because why? Because they sense their need. When people don't gather to pray... They're essentially saying we don't need to pray. A church that does not pray often is a church that does not pray because they don't see or feel the need. And if you don't feel the need to pray, you are in a desperate condition. That's what's so disturbing about the situation in our own country is that the prayer meeting is the worst attended meeting of all the meetings. It's because we don't feel a great need or burden. 
A prayerless church is a church of practical atheism, despite its profession. The prayer meeting says more about the church's condition than just about anything else. David knew what it was to pray for revival. He knew what it was to pray for the preservation of life and soul. He was on the run. He was persecuted. He knew what it was life to have a life of trouble. In some ways, maybe only Jesus had a life of greater trouble than David. The bear attacked David, the lion. He had Goliath, the Philistines, Saul's persecutions. He had battles with surrounding nations. You have the coup d'etat attempt by Absalom. And yet, what does David do? He continues to pray. He cries out to the Lord for help, mercy. So many of the psalms we sing today are because David was in all those situations that I just named. So what do we take from this? Number one, God... God remembers his covenant with us for the sake of Jesus Christ. If David was heard, how much more the son of David, Jesus Christ. And so we should remember that in our desire for communion with God and for revival for the church, we need to remember that we have an ally, an advocate. We are told with the Father. There's good news. It doesn't depend ultimately on us. Jesus Christ is in prayer. It was said that if you could hear Jesus Christ praying for you, you would have no fears. Jesus Christ, because of his faithfulness, has also gained us the right to be heard. Christ not only is our high priest making intercession for us, but we also can intercede. It is said in the New Testament that there are three people praying. You are praying, and also the Spirit of God within you is interceding, and Christ in heaven is interceding. So pray that God would preserve your soul and would also revive his church. Pray that we would pray the words of David in Psalm 51, that the Lord would not take his spirit away from thy servant. You know, God, one of the greatest and most awful and terrible judgments of the Lord is to remove the Holy Spirit from a person or from a congregation or from a country. The withdrawing of the Holy Spirit is one of the most terrible judgments because often what happens is they continue to go on in their ways and they don't even realize God is no longer in the meeting. We should be encouraged, though, that as the psalmist here is ta- asking God to restore us, he is also saying, cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? We here see David making a case, or the sons of Korah making a case here, based on the character of God. God is good. God is ready to forgive. God is not an unwilling hearer for those who are petitioning him for mercy. His loving kindness is abundant. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He's infinitely good. Jesus said, there is none good but God. Why do you call me good, he said to the man who said, oh, good teacher. He is ready to forgive. We see this in Luke 15, don't we? He is the God who scans the horizon, portrayed by the father in the parable of the prodigal son. 
father scans the horizon to look for the lost son. He does not let his son even finish his rehearsed statement before he forgives him. God is ready to forgive. God is ready. Why? Well, because Christ has completed the atonement. Christ has died and justice is satisfied. And God asks no more. Ezekiel tells us this, and I'll close, that God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. God doesn't delight in punishing the apostate. God would rather we turn. God would rather men be revived and reformed according to the word of God. This is an encouragement to us. Jesus says that even heaven rejoices even in a single solitary sinner who repents. Heaven is rejoicing. God is abundant in his loving kindness. He is not one who is unwilling to generate or to show mercy. God is ready. Let's pray for revival and pray that the Lord shows mercy. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight and thank you, Lord, for reminding us that uh, you are God who is gracious. You've been gracious in seasons past. And Lord, we pray that you be gracious to us tonight. Thank you, God, for meeting with us. Thank you, Lord, for strengthening us and encouraging us in the word. May what we hear tonight be an encouragement to us to pray. May we give ourselves to pray that we persevere in prayer. Lord, please answer our prayers. Help us to wait upon you. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We're going to uh, close tonight by singing 213, 213 in the hymnal, and we're going to stand together as we finish. So let's stand together.